Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. And welcome back to the Lotus Underground. This is MC Owens, and this is going to be part six of my series on the Noble Eightfold Path. And today I am going to be talking about Samyak Viyama, otherwise known as Right Effort. Uh, again, this is the sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And I was thinking that um, in order to sort of define this idea of right effort, this idea of viyama, um, I wanted to sort of quickly review the first five steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. And I wanted to use an example in order to sort of start to describe what it means, this idea of right effort or right view, right action, right intention, this idea of doing it the right way. I want to kind of make a, give it a good example to make it clear what that idea of right or correct or proper means. And it's not really about right or wrong, as I've said probably in earlier recordings here, but the idea of correct is about conducive, conducive to enlightenment, conducive to the alleviation of suffering, leading to the alleviation of suffering. The idea is, is that there are ways of doing these eight things, establishing a view, setting an intention, acting, speaking. There is a way to do those that is conducive to enlightenment, which is called samyak, correct or proper. And there's ways that it is not conducive to that. And again, it's not to say that it's wrong, it's just not conducive in that sense. And so the example that I want to give you in terms of how to think about the way that the Noble Eightfold Path functions as a whole, and again, if you go back to those earlier uh, sessions, I was making a really strong uh, point that the Noble Eightfold Path is very cumulative in that sense that if the first step on the path, the right view, the idea is if the view is askew, if the view is incorrect or improper, then the idea is that the intentions that we set will also then be improper, not conducive to enlightenment. So the example I want to give you is of two, think of two families, two households living on the same block, so to speak. And there's two children one in each household, and in the first household, the child is, is taught, is told, is instilled with a worldview, a drishti. So this is the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is establishing the right view. Again, that's a drishti, and we're talking about you know, not a view with our eyes, but more of a point of view, an opinion about this world. And ultimately with a drishti, we're talking about the very idea of, well, what is this world about? What is this life about? What is, what's going on here? And so imagine that first child is told by its parents that in this world, 
in this life, wealth and property will make you safe and happy. Now that worldview may sound familiar. It's kind of a common worldview, which is the idea that the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of possessions makes one safer and happier. So let's say that that's the worldview that our first child is given, right? Acquire wealth, acquire possessions, and you will be safe and you will be happy in this life. But now let's go down the block where there's a different family. And that family, let's just say, is a bodhisattva family, a family of Buddhists, and they're instilling in their child what they consider to be the right view. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole idea of the right view, but if you go back and listen to the first of these series, the idea of the right view is very much the opposite of that first family. And what I mean is, is that the right view, again, is about this idea that th all things are impermanent, that actually objects and things are ultimately a source of anxiety or stress, suffering, dukkha, and so it's better maybe to not get too involved in them. And then ultimately, the right view is this teaching about the the self, or I should say the illusional, delusional nature of the self. And so the idea is, is that that second family is instilling in their child this Buddhist view of impermanence and suffering and no self and all of that. So now let's follow these two children on their journey towards the second step of the path. So the second step on the path is the idea of setting the right intention, which of course, as I've said, will be coming out of one's drishti, one's view. And so what do you think that first child's intention will be in this life, in this world? If they've been instilled with the worldview that security and happiness depends upon the acquisition of wealth and property, then they will probably set the intention to make a lot of money, to acquire a lot of things in order to be safer and happier. So that's the idea of how we move from a worldview to an intention. Now, of course, that second household with that other child, that other child is setting the intention to try to not get too attached to things that will are impermanent, that will <clears throat> decay, fall apart, to not put one's happiness and joy dependent upon things of this world, and ultimately to be working upon this idea of the self, to be analyzing that idea of the self with the idea that ultimately Overcoming attachment to that which is impermanent, overcoming dependency on that which is suffering, and coming to a clearer realization about the nature of the self, that's the intention of that second child. That's what that second child is going for. And so now if we take another step on the path and we start looking at the idea of 
right speech. So in terms of right speech, we talked about it in terms of kind of uh, right speech being about truth, about not speaking harshly, about not speaking idly, about kind of watching what you say in that sense. And so that would be the right speech of our uh, child growing up in the Buddhist household, where the idea is, is that their sense of right speech is coming out of their intention, which is coming out of their view, their drishti. But you can imagine that that first child who's pursuing wealth and property, that the way that they use their voice, the way that they speak, even what they speak about, is going to be very different than that Buddhist child. And what I mean is, is that you might hear from that first child something like, I'm going to be a billionaire someday. And that, of course, that idea that someone would enunciate, announce to the world, my plan, my big plan is to be a billionaire. Well, that speech, that way of talking is coming directly out of the intention set and again, directly out of the worldview. So now we're seeing how the very way that we use our voice, the very things that we kind of uh, put out in the universe, as they say, is all going to be ultimately arising from that intention that we made. Now, if we take another step on the Noble Eightfold Path and we look at the fourth step, which is the idea of right action. And again, we'll remember that the idea of right action for our Buddhist household was ideas about avoiding harm, avoiding violence, not stealing, things like that, acts of morality in that sense. So the idea of the correct way to use one's body, the right action that is conducive to enlightenment <clears throat> has a lot to do with morality in that sense. But if we go to our household where our child is determined to be a billionaire, has been talking their whole childhood about being a billionaire, what do you think the action, the physical action of that child will be as they grow up? My guess is, is that they will devote their bodily karma, they will devote their bodily action towards working, <laughs> working very hard to get the billion dollars that they have set out to make because they have the view that they will be safer and happier that way. The action of our Buddhist, of course, is working towards enlightenment, working towards not clinging to the impermanent, not depending upon the external objects of sense pleasure for joy and delight, and ultimately working on this stubborn, delusional sense of self. So now these two paths, if you will, these two destinies, if you would like, of these two children are are radically diverging, right? That the now the very things that we're doing with our bodies on a daily basis are very, very different. And so when we come to the fifth 
step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right livelihood. So this was our topic last time in my in my last uh, entry in these series. And although livelihood is usually equated with one's occupation, I tried to make it clear that livelihood is actually about how you sustain your life. Like literally, where do you get food to eat? How do you how do you manage to do that? And of course, in these two uh, children's lives, their livelihood will be very different. And you could imagine that that first child that grew up in the household that instilled the worldview that it's all about wealth and property, that child and now an adult, their livelihood, what they're doing every day is very much going to be coming out of everything we just talked about. It's going to be coming out of all of those previous steps to where they find themselves in an occupation, in a job, in a livelihood that, again, it's all going towards that idea of acquiring wealth and acquiring property. On the other hand, our person who grew up, grew up in the Buddhist household Although they too need to survive, of course, and they need to sustain, to sustain themselves, there's a variety of ways that that Buddhist child, now Buddhist adult, there's a variety of ways that they could support themselves in terms of their livelihood. And it may or may not look like a job uh, in terms of a money-acquiring occupation. <laughs> And what I mean is, if you think about the the original injunction or the original prescription of the Buddha, which was to go around and beg directly for food, directly for that which you need to survive. Don't beg for money to then go buy food, and certainly don't work for money to then go buy food. Go right to the food. <laughs> go right to the direct source in that way. And so again, you can see how one, the Buddhist, their livelihood and the, it, the very way in which they approach livelihood is going to be very different than that first child who is setting off to either get a job or invo be involved in some kind of livelihood that's working towards that greater goal, that greater intention of acquiring wealth and acquiring property. And now that brings us to the sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is our topic for this morning, or top, my morning, topic for today. This is the idea of viyama, effort, putting forth the correct or proper effort. And I want you to know right off the bat that if you are familiar with the Buddhist concept or the Buddhist idea of virya, determination, drive. Virya is one of the paramitas, one of the excellences or perfections of the bodhisattva path. I want you to know that this sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, Samyak Viyama, the term Viyama for effort is often interchangeable with Virya. 
So the idea of determination, drive, effort, all of these ideas are kind of very much one and the same. And so I just wanted to mention that, that if you're more familiar with the idea of virya, this would be correct virya, correct determination. The, the particular word, though, that is usually used is this word viyama for effort. So now let's go back to our two, uh, two people. <laughs> so let's say that regarding these two people who have set off on their life's journey, right, based upon their worldview, and one is working uh, diligently hard in order to acquire wealth and property because they're pretty convinced that that leads to security and happiness. Our other person, our person who grew up in the Buddhist household, is has a very different intention in this life, in this world. It's not actually about acquisition. You could actually look at it in terms of de-acquisition or not so much de-acquisition as this idea of, well, not having, but doing without. So the idea is, is that these are, you know, these two people are working in two very different directions. And because they're working in two very different directions, the very idea of what constitutes the right effort, the right drive, the right determination. Well, if we think about our first person who's seeking uh, wealth and property, let's say that that person finds themselves anxious, nervous, fearful one day. The idea is, is that because they have the worldview or the drishti that they do, and because they've made the intention that they have made, there's a way in which if they start to get fearful or nervous or stressed out, they may fall back on the idea of, oh, I need to work harder. I need to work 80 hours a week because 40 hours a week is not actually getting me the wealth and the property that's making me feel secure. I don't feel secure. I feel nervous. I feel stressed out. Therefore, I guess I should work harder. That's right. That will be my effort. The right effort, according to our wealth and property seeker, the right effort for that is to work harder, is to work 80 hours a week. Our person who grew up in the Buddhist household, though, who is not seeking wealth and property, if they find themselves stressed out or nervous one day, they may attribute it to an act of clinging, an act of desperation, an act of wanting, an act of desiring in that way. And so their right effort would not look like doubling down on effort. It wouldn't look like 80 hours a week. It might actually look like a meditation retreat where they take time off to calm down. Very, very, very different approach to the idea of effort because we would usually associate effort with sweat on the brow, hard, diligent work, what, what they like to call nowadays the grind. 
If you're not grinding away, you're not putting forth the right effort. Well, that's only within a particular drishti, in a particular worldview where it makes sense to grind yourself away in order to try to feel more secure and happier. Okay, so that brings us to the topic today, which is, you know, this, let's go, we're going to go deeper into the Buddhist sense of right effort. Um, and just to kind of give you a sneak peek of where this is going, because I'm presenting the Noble Eightfold Path as a cumulative kind of progressive progress, or progressive progress, but that kind of cumulative sense, the idea is, is that the, the view that we have, the intentions we make, the things that we say, the things that we do, our livelihood and our effort, those first six steps on the Noble Eightfold Path are actually uh, preparatory, if you will, so that we can actually establish the correct mindfulness. So that's going to be the seventh step on the Noble Eightfold Path. That'll be my uh, next installment in this series, which is the idea of, of sati or shmrti, this idea of mindfulness. And not just mindfulness, but the right, correct mindfulness. And ultimately, again, the idea is, is that that correct or that right mindfulness, that right meditative state cannot really be achieved without the first six steps on the path being also conducive, correct, or proper to enlightenment. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick peek at our, uh, this is the um, kind of like the baseline sutra that I've been using for this series. This is in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha. Right, and this is a tiny little sutra buried way in the back. If you if you have the Wisdom Publication Edition, it's on page fifteen twenty eight. It is the eighth sutra in the forty fifth section. The forty fifth section, which is the section on the marga or the maga, the path, and this little tiny sutra number eight in section forty five is simply called the analysis, and it is a analysis of the steps of the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's the sutra I've been using as, again, kind of the baseline definition for each of these. And so, you may ask, regarding that Buddhist household, regarding that Buddhist practitioner who's putting forth the right effort to establish the right mindfulness, what is their right effort all about? And well, and, and the Buddha tells us in the sutra, and what is right effort? Well, here, a practitioner generates desire for the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind, and strives. He generates desire for the abandoning of arisen unwholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind, and strives. He generates a desire for the arising 
of unarisen wholesome states, making an effort, arousing energy, applying the mind and striving, and he generates desire for the maintaining of arisen wholesome states. A desire for their non-decay, for their increase, for their expansion and fulfillment by development. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. This is called right effort. So those are what are called the four right efforts. Two concern unwholesome dharmas and two concern wholesome dharmas. And it functions the same way. The idea is, is that we take a, the various unwholesome dharmas, unhelpful dharmas, things like greed, anger, frustration, bitterness, resentment. It, the list goes on and on and on in terms of unwholesome dharmas, unwholesome mental states in that sense. So the practitioner here, the Buddhist practitioner, the right effort is if, let's say I'm feel, feeling very compassionate, I'm feeling very, very uh, lovingly kind, right? Full of metta. In other words, I don't really have any anger. The first right effort is to try to keep it that way, which is to say unarisen unwholesome states. So it anger, unwholesome state that hasn't arisen. It's not present. The first right effort is to try to maintain the unarising of unwholesome states. The second is that if one has arisen, an unwholesome state has arisen, let's say something has gotten to me and I've gotten a little angry. The idea is, is that I don't tend to it. I don't maintain it. And in a sense, I don't allow it to continue to arise. Similarly, regarding what are called wholesome dharmas, which are things like compassion, loving kindness, wisdom, friendliness. These things are wholesome dharmas. And the idea is, is that if one finds that one isn't feeling compassionate or lovingly kind or friendly, one puts forth the effort to give rise to such wholesome dharmas. And the forthright effort is that if one does find themselves in a state of compassion or state of loving kindness, <clears throat> one tries to foster that, supports that, and tries to maintain that wholesome mental state. The classic analogy that is used within Buddhism, but also in other religious traditions as well, the classic analogy for the four right efforts here is to treat the mind like a garden. And the idea of treating the mind like a garden is that you can start to think of these unwholesome dharmas, anger, bitterness. You can start to think of them as like weeds in the garden of our mind. Whereas if you think of those wholesome dharmas, like loving kindness and compassion, equanimity as well, those would be like flowers in our garden. And so 
the idea of right effort is that we take, take trips around the garden of our mind. And when we see little weeds, little weeds of unwholesome dharmas popping up in the garden of our mind, the idea is, is that we don't run over with miracle grow and water and fertilizer and all of these different things and feed it. So again, in, in a real world example, the idea is that if, if you know, if something, if something happens, you know, let's say somebody, uh, I'm trying to park somewhere and somebody takes my parking spot and I find myself getting angry because somebody took my parking spot. I could fuel that anger. I could water that anger. I could feed that anger and get out of my car and start yelling at the person. And in other words, I would just be feeding that weed of anger and it would really start to grow and overtake the garden of my mind. Likewise, though, if I'm cruising around the garden of my mind and I find a beautiful little flower of loving kindness, where I have found myself being very compassionate and kind towards someone or many people, the idea is, is that's a flower or those are flowers. And we definitely want to go over and tend to those flowers. We want to, to dote on those flowers and really take care of them. And the idea is that if we're a good gardener, eventually our minds will be this beautiful garden with no weeds of unwholesome dharmas. Okay, so that's the simple, basic idea of right effort, and in particular, the definition of the idea of the four right efforts, which sort of explain the general idea of the path, or this step on the path, I should say. Okay, um, and so on that note, I'm going to conclude this talk on right effort with the reading of a little sutra. Um, the reason why I chose this sutra is, although it is, it's very much about effort, it's very much about determination and drive, so it's, it's def definitely about viyama and virya, but in particular, I want to remind you of something that was in the tiny little analysis sutra that I just read. And what is right effort? The Buddha asks rhetorically. He says, here, someone generates the desire for the non-arising of unwholesome states. He generates desire for the abandoning of arisen unwholesome states, generates desire for the arising of wholesome states, and generates desire for the maintenance of already arisen wholesome states. So the reason why I want to read the next sutra, like an actual sutra that talks about this, is it's actually not so much about viyama or virya, the idea of effort and drive, it's about this idea of desire. Your immediate reaction, my immediate reaction, kind of is basically the idea of, well, but isn't, isn't desire the problem? Isn't desire like a, a bad thing in Buddhism? Not necessarily. 
And that's why I want to go over to this. So this is a sutra that's also in the Samyutta Nikaya. So it's also in the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And this is a sutra that is called... Yeah, so uh, this is a sutra that is also in the Samyutta Nikaya. It's in a different section of the Samyutta Nikaya. So I mentioned that the, the Samyutta Nikaya, it's sutras that are grouped. Um, they're grouped together based on their theme. So the one that I just read from, the Analysis Sutra, that's from all of these sutras that are about the Marga, about the Noble Eightfold Path. This sutra that I want to read for you today is from section 51 of the Samyutta Nikaya, and it's a section on the Riddhipada, which is the, um, the Riddhipada, Riddhis are like uh, spiritual powers. They're very associated with the Siddhis, the supernormal powers, and the Riddhipada is the path towards the development of these spiritual powers. <clears throat> and this whole section of the Samyutta Nikaya is all these little sutras that are dedicated to uh, the, the Riddhipada. And I want to read this tiny one. So this is the 15th sutra in the Riddhipada section, which is section 51. It, again, if you have the Wisdom Publication Edition, I'm reading from page 1732. And... This is one of those sutras, by the way, before I read it, that we got to read, we have to remember, we should remember that this is one of those tricky sutras where the teaching doesn't come from the Buddha. It, the teaching actually comes from Ananda, the, that's right, the Buddha's young cousin. And so, you know, just keep that in mind. And it's always very important, especially with the early Pali suttas, it's always very important to be aware of who is giving the teaching. And the idea there is, is that the, the especially the Pali suttas, they're very aware that when it's, say, Shariputra or Ananda or someone else, when it's someone other than the Buddha, these sutras are very aware, or they want you to be aware that this is not the Buddha saying these things. This is somebody's interpretation of them. And that interpretation may or may not be exactly correct. Now, in this sutra, I think Ananda's uh, teaching is very correct, but I just want you to be aware that this is sort of secondhand information. This is not directly from the Buddha's mouth in that way. And so this uh, wonderful, beautiful little sutra is a interesting little conversation between Ananda and a Brahmin, a priest named Unaba. Unaba. Uh, tricky name to pronounce, but he's a Brahmin, a priest. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling at Kosimba in Gosita's park. Then the Brahmin, Unaba, approached the Venerable Ananda and exchanged greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and their cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to the Venerable Ananda, 
For what purpose, Master Ananda, is the holy life lived under the ascetic Gotama, the Buddha? Ananda replied, It is for the sake of abandoning desire, Brahmin, that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. But Master Ananda, the Brahmin asked, Is there a path, is there a way for the abandoning of desire? There is a path, Brahmin. There is a way for the abandoning of desire. But Master Ananda, the Brahmin asked, What is the path, what is the way for the abandoning of desire? Here, Brahmin, Ananda said, a bhikkhu, a monk, develops the basis for spiritual power, the riddhipada, which possesses concentration due to desire and samskara, conditioning of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses the concentration due to energy and conditioning of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to the mind, citta, and samskara, volitional formations, or conditioning for striving. And, and he develops concentration due to investigation and conditioning of striving. This, Brahmin, is the path. This is the way for the abandoning of desire. The Brahmin asked, Such being the case, Master Ananda, the situation is interminable, not terminable. It is impossible that one can abandon desire by means of desire itself. Ananda replied, Well then, Brahman, I will question you about this matter. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Brahman? Did you earlier today have the desire? I will go to the park. And after you went to the park, did the corresponding desire subside? Yes, sir, the Brahmin replied. And did you earlier arouse energy, thinking, I will go to the park? And after you went to the park, did that corresponding energy subside? Well, yes, sir, the Brahmin replied. And did you earlier make up your mind? I will go to the park. And after you went to the park, did that corresponding resolution of mind subside? Well, yes, sir, the Brahmin replied. And did you earlier make an investigation? Shall I go to the park? And after you went to the park, did that corresponding investigation subside? Yes, sir, the Brahmin replied. It is exactly the same, Brahmin, with a practitioner, a bhikkhu, who is, in, who is an arhat, one whose taints 
are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, and reached their own goal, utterly destroying the fetters of existence, and being completely liberated through final knowledge. He earlier had the desire for the attainment of arhatship. And when he attained arhatship, the corresponding desire for arhatship subsided. He earlier had aroused energy for the attainment of arhatship. And when he attained arhatship, the corresponding energy subsided. He earlier had made up his mind to attain arhatship. And when he attained arhatship, the corresponding resolution subsided. He earlier made the investigation for the attainment of arhatship. And when he attained arhatship, the corresponding investigation subsided. What do you think, Brahman? Such being the case, is the situation terminable or interminable? Can it be ended or is it unending? Surely, Master Ananda, the Brahmin replied, such being the case, the situation is terminable, not interminable. Magnificent, Master Ananda! From today, let Master Ananda remember me as a lay follower of the Buddha who has gone for refuge for life. Okay, so that's just a simple, uh, tiny little sutra that I found in the Riddhipada section of the Samyutta Nikaya that I really, really appreciated for that message regarding desire. This word, the, the word for desire is chanda. And the idea actually is, is that normally what is being referred to in Buddhism as a quote-unquote no-no, as something to be avoided, is something called kama chanda. The chanda, the desire for kama, K-A-M-M-A, which of course is sensual pleasures, right? And so kama chanda, which is... Um, well, it's one of the hindrances, and it's what people are referring to when they talk about desire as kind of a bad thing in Buddhism. It's particularly the desire for the satisfaction of the senses, the desire to watch something, the desire to hear something, smell something, taste something, feel something or somebody, and of course, to be thinking wonderful thoughts. So the six senses and the six corresponding sense pleasures and the idea of desiring those, the idea being I'm not delighted right now, I'm not joyful and happy right now, but I could be if I just had X, Y, or Z, some sensual pleasure. It's that kind of desire, the desire for kama, sensual pleasure, that is the problem. Whereas wanting the end of suffering, desiring one's own end of suffering is not a problem. In fact, if we really kind of pay attention to the, the sutta, actually both suttas I just read, 
you have to want this. You need to want it. You need to desire the alleviation of suffering. You need to desire liberation and freedom in that way. And so that's an important point to make that desire, chanda, in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, we need it as fuel to push us forward in that sense. The, the question though is, what are you desiring? Are you desiring a goodie or are you desiring liberation? And then the most interesting aspect for, for me of that tiny uh, little sutta I just read is it has to do with the idea of, well, the Brahmin asks the question and he says, well, how is that possible? How can you get rid of desire by using desire? It's a very, very interesting question. And, you know, anybody familiar with the Vajrayana, the kind of the tantric Buddhist path or the, the esoteric Buddhist path, it, that is very much a path about using desire to overcome desire. So there's a lot of relationship between later Buddhism, the more tantric form of Buddhism, and this very, very early sutta on the Riddhipada, which is talking about how we have desire, we put forth the effort, but like the, Ananda says to the Brahmin, you know, earlier today, didn't you desire to come to the park? And he says, yeah. And he says, but now that you're at the park, do you still desire to come to the park? And the idea is, is well, well, no, I don't desire to come to the park. I'm at the park. The, so the desire is gone because I have achieved what I set out to do. And that's exactly what Ananda says regarding the Arhat, that the Arhat actually desires uh, Arhatship, desires liberation in that sense, puts forth the effort, in that way, sets their mind to it, investigates, does all these things to bring that about. But once it has been brought about, the idea is they no longer desire. And of course, kind of like I was just saying regarding desire, it's always about the way things could be. And so if you have achieved arhatship, if you still have desire, then you haven't achieved arhatship. <laughs> it's like, it's very much kind of just a logical equation in that, in that way. Okay, um, so I think that's gonna be it for uh, this entry in my series on the Noble Eightfold Path. These have been a few remarks and a few little uh, sutra nuggets uh, regarding samyagviyama, right effort. Um, I hope you will stay tuned and come back uh, for part seven when we talk about the idea of right mindfulness. <laughs>